China is bracing for another COVID-19 wave. That's after health workers recently discovered 120 new subvariants. While the West has mostly begun to move on from the pandemic, China could be hunkering back down. This comes as Beijing scraps production of its domestic vaccines due to low efficacy rates. What does the looming wave mean for the world? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. 120 subvariants of COVID-19 discovered in China in recent months. This according to Chinese authorities. Now, an expert says the country's next COVID-19 wave is around the corner. My channel hasn't been updated for more than 10 days because my whole family has been infected with the flu. Some people say this is not flu, but the second wave of the pandemic. Who knows if it's flu or COVID-19? According to China's Center for Disease Control and Prevention, four new subvariants of the COVID-19 virus were discovered last week. And since the country's reopening at the end of last year, 120 subvariants have been found within its borders. That knowledge triggering more concerns about the infection's mutations. On top of that, the production of the first Chinese-made drug to treat COVID-19 has been suspended due to the drug's poor efficacy. With the virus re-emerging in quite a few Chinese provinces, the director of China's National Center for Infectious Disease recently predicted that COVID-19 will spread far faster than the flu in China and that the next wave of the pandemic will hit the country in May and June this year. China also plans to restart its COVID-19 testing with some changes. This time, it's not about mass testing all residents in a given city. Instead, health workers will perform random and spot checks at medical facilities in the country. Officials say their goal is to track incomplete and underreported COVID-19 data. That's amid the country's history of severely underreporting its health numbers. House Republicans are investigating the Biden administration for an alleged abuse of power. They say the White House suppressed information about COVID-19. Meanwhile, House Democrats say it's actually their GOP counterparts who are weaponizing the government. Let's dive in. Did the government pressure social media to censor Americans for saying things like natural immunity is real? Absolutely. Did the government pressure social media to censor Americans for saying things like gain-of-function research happened in that lab in China? Absolutely. The House Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is probing a lawsuit by Louisiana and Missouri. The suit from May 2022 says the Biden administration colluded with social media giants Meta, Twitter and YouTube to censor free speech in the name of combating so-called disinformation and misinformation. Missouri's former Attorney General Eric Schmidt was another witness. In his opening statement, he said Dr. Anthony Fauci knew that the Wuhan lab in China was conducting gain-of-function research. But he sought to discredit and suppress the theory that COVID-19 leaked from a lab to deflect blame and avoid potential responsibility for the pandemic. He and Louisiana's Attorney General left after their opening remarks. Some Democrats heavily criticized that because they couldn't examine the two. Here. You're not here they're, they're to understand that. You be able to they ask. have scurried you can, away you can, with you your complicity. You, uh, they, they refused they to defend. Not away. They in were a country of 330 like million people, you couldn't Sauer find two people for his to defend their statements. That's, that's pretty disgraceful. Mr. Sauer, if allowing you them to leave is not weaponization, I don't know what is, Mr. Oh, Chairman. Yeah, yeah, right. 
However, Jordan later pointed out that the witnesses aren't required to stay. Also, that Republicans similarly weren't able to examine witnesses at the January 6 hearings. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Chinese telecom giant Huawei is facing rough waters. The tech corporation just released its profit report for 2022, and it reflects the sharpest drop since 2011. Huawei says its net profit for the year hit slightly over $5 billion, signaling a near 70% drop from 2021. In effort to explain the dive, company leadership cited issues like rising commodity prices, last year's pandemic restrictions, and a one-off gain last year that boosted the 2021 total. That's related to the company's sale of smart device brand Honor. But other issues may be playing a bigger role. For years, the U.S. has been working to cut off Beijing's access to cutting-edge technology. That's for fear it could be used to advance Chinese military development. Washington successfully blocked Huawei's access to key American tech in 2019 through 2020, including Google's Android operating system, the parts it needs to run, like certain microchips. The move crippled the tech giant's smartphone business, sending it plummeting from its status as the world's number one. Without the Android system, the company has faced difficulty selling its smartphones and smartwatches outside China. Huawei devices now use the Harmony OS operating system. It reportedly functions on over 330 million tech gadgets as of late 2022, but hasn't caught on to popularity outside China. What's more, Washington has been urging nations worldwide to exclude Huawei gear as they build 5G network infrastructure. That's over espionage concerns, with many accusing the company of feeding info to Beijing's Communist Party. Some have joined the effort, like the UK, while others are still weighing it, like Germany. Despite all that, CFO Meng Wenzhou touted 2022 at a recent news conference, calling it the year the company pulled itself out of crisis mode and returned to business as normal. She and other executives said they fought their way out of what they called a fatal impasse, referencing the U.S. pressure. The year saw Huawei diversify into new areas, like cloud computing and the electric car market. A new rule from Chinese securities officials taking effect on Friday. From now on, Chinese companies that want to list overseas must first get the green light from authorities. Here's more. The regulator for China's securities industry would vet the company's applications. It's called the China Securities Regulatory Commission. Seven Chinese companies listed in the U.S. in March before the deadline. That's compared with just four in the previous month. Chinese authorities say the new rule reflects China's commitment to opening its capital markets. The new rule seeks to clarify the country's previously obscure regulations. Historically, China hasn't enforced clear regulatory rules for overseas listings. In 2021, it clamped down on rideshare giant Didi after it went public and raised over $4 billion in the U.S. The move left many dumbfounded. Beijing also put pressure on companies looking to list overseas after Didi's incident. The head of China's security regulator meeting with big wigs from Wall Street and Beijing Friday. That's including senior executives from Goldman Sachs, HSBC and Bridgewater. The regulator, called the China Securities Regulatory Commission, said international financial institutions and investors are welcome to expand in China. The trip marks the top financial executive's first China visit since the pandemic. That's as global financial giants seek to bolster relations with Beijing. 
Wall Street and European firms have stepped up expansion in China in recent years. That's by establishing new setups and joint ventures. A blow to China's chip-making industry. Another country is signing on to U.S. export restrictions, targeting semiconductor-making equipment. Here are the details. A U.S.-led charge to make it harder for China to make advanced chips scored a big win on Friday. That's as Japan became the latest country to align itself with U.S. technology trade controls. It announced it would restrict exports of 23 types of semiconductor manufacturing equipment. Japan said equipment makers would need to look for export permission for all regions, though it did not specify China as the target of the measures. Japanese Economy and Trade Minister Yasutoshi Nishimura said Japan wants to stop advanced tech being used for military purposes. The decision is seen as a major win for US President Joe Biden's administration. In October, it announced restrictions on China's access to U.S. chip-making tech to slow its military and technological advances. Fellow chip technology heavyweight The Netherlands said earlier this month that it too would join the U.S. in restricting exports. Japan's restrictions will be effective from July and cover six categories of equipment used in chip-making. The country is a key producer of chip-related tech made by companies like Tokyo Electron and Nikon. Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen left New York on Friday, headed for Central America. She departed the states with an award in hand, received the day before from the renowned think tank Hudson Institute. Hudson President and CEO John Walters made a statement at the Institute's evening event, saying Tsai has led a vibrant democracy with great courage and clear-eyed determination. That's to resist tyranny and maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific. Hudson's Global Leadership Award is presented to international leaders who make outstanding contributions to the world and demonstrate extraordinary moral courage. Tsai will stop in California on her way back from Central America to Taiwan. There, she's expected to meet with U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Another battleground for China and Taiwan. On Friday, China's foreign ministry stated its opposition to Taiwan joining the CPTPP. It's an international free trade agreement based around the Pacific Rim. Britain, on the other hand, agreed to join the trade pact the same day, seeking to build ties around the world after leaving the European Union. Entering the trade pact requires unanimous consent from all current members. In 2021, both China and Taiwan applied to join. For Taiwan to get in, the island must be accepted first in order to prevent China from voting it out. For decades, China has seen Taiwan as its own territory. Though the Communist Party has never ruled the island, the Chinese regime has a history of opposing the possibility of Taiwan forming its own diplomatic ties with the West. But that hasn't stopped Taiwan from seeking alliances. Last Monday, Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen called on Britain for support, asking the nation to back its bid to join. The long-term benefits of the trade pact mean little for the UK but leaders are aiming to boost geopolitical strategy. Britain sees China as what is called an epic-defining challenge. The nation has also teamed up with other countries, both to counter China and protect maritime security in the Indo-Pacific. Around 70 military drills. That's how many exercises U.S. forces have conducted this month around the world. The latest is a joint drill with the Philippines in Southeast Asia. The live fire activity kicked off on Friday at the Philippines' largest military base. It's part of annual joint exercises between the two countries. This year, over 3,000 soldiers took part. 
highlighting improved ties between the two militaries. The drills come on the heels of another development, the Philippines granting Washington access to more of its military bases. The move angered Beijing, as the Philippines is seen as a key partner in the geopolitical rivalry between the U.S. and China. Washington's alliance in the Indo-Pacific is keeping Beijing on edge. China now trying to win over its neighbors and get them away from Washington. The communist regime is now poised to sign an agreement to join the Southeast Asia Nuclear Weapon-Free Zone Treaty. Here's more. The treaty, also known as the Bangkok Treaty, is aimed to keep nuclear weapons out of Southeast Asia. Under it, 10 Southeast Asian states would renounce the right to nuclear weapons in any form in the region. If signed, it would make China the first nuclear weapon state to adhere, setting it apart from France, Russia, Britain and the United States. In a meeting with the treaty's head on Monday, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gong made the commitment to join. As far back as 2021, Chinese leader Xi Jinping has signaled urgency for entering the agreement. Analysts see the move as a way for Beijing to embellish its image and divert attention away from its rapid nuclear expansion. Another factor at play, just a few months earlier that same year, the U.S. forged an alliance with Australia and the U.K., known as AUKUS. The partnership allows for the sharing of advanced defense technologies to counter China. Again, Beijing's latest commitment follows closely on the heels of a new AUKUS announcement. It confirms Australia's purchases of U.S. nuclear-powered submarines. Experts warn that China could use the Bangkok Treaty to sow discord between the U.S. and the agreement's southeastern member countries. Australia remains one of Washington's top allies in the Indo-Pacific region. So how should the nation handle its Pacific Island neighbors, especially when they hold strategic importance? We spoke to Kevin Andrews, former Australian Minister for Defense and a contributor with the Epoch Times for his take on this, plus how to deal with China in trade. The foreign minister, for example, and the trade minister, the defense minister of Australia visit these uh, nation, these island nations, on a regular basis, not just to see visits to Europe or the United States or uh, elsewhere, uh, the, you know, the, the big powers as being important, but also to be visiting on a very regular basis to these countries. And I think we also should be doing things like um, sending, you know, our naval uh, vessels uh, through those countries. They're there when a natural disaster occurs and we're providing help. But I think just to be seen in a port uh, in many of these nations from time to time on a, on a fairly uh, regular or frequent rotation, I think is important. It sends a message to say that Australia um, is part of this region and we care for what happens in your country. And zooming in on Australia specifically, it seems in the past years with the pandemic, Australia-China relations have been really in the spotlight, especially in terms of trade. Going forward, how do you see those relations continuing? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Well, China is a major trading partner for Australia. Uh, it's, it's a major destination for uh, many of our resources, for, for iron ore, for coal in particular. Uh, and that's going to continue in the future. It's going to be important. Uh, China needs energy. Uh, China needs raw materials in order to maintain and uh, indeed restart uh, its economy, having um, suffered under the COVID restrictions and the like. So that relationship is important, but it's not a, it's not a no limits relationship. It's it's a relationship 
in which we say there are certain things which we stand for uh, and that are important for international trade. If we don't have uh, an international uh, laws, international law that relates to how we trade, uh, then that whole uh, edifice is, is in danger of falling apart. And it seems in terms of Australia, it's almost a way for other countries to learn because we saw these massive tariffs that the Chinese regime levied over 200% in terms of wine. And yet the Australian economy did not collapse. It seems Australia diversified their supply chains and continued on. And instead, China has an energy shortage because a lot of that did come from Australia. So what would you say other countries could learn from this to take forward? Uh, the first thing is not simply to kowtow to uh, the rhetoric coming from China. Uh, you know, the wolf warrior diplomacy has been to the fore. Uh, we, none, none of us should bow down to that. Um, secondly, and importantly, countries should ensure that they don't have their trade all with one country or a majority of their trade with one country. And what Australia has done in, in much of its export is to actually diversify that trade so that if things do go wrong with China, we hope they don't, but if they do, uh, then economically we are not dependent upon China uh, in terms of our own prosperity, and I think countries can learn from that. And, and third, thirdly, countries need to stand together. You know, the Chinese issued this list of grievances against Australia. They listed a list of grievances against the United States. Uh, they're all similar things, but we have to be prepared to stand up to that and say, no, we're not going to bow down to this sort of uh, aggression. And with all of the different areas covered today, any final words you'd like to share? Uh, only that uh, it's important that democracies unite. Um, you, you see that um, Xi and Putin in this latest visit are trying to join with other autocracies. Uh, he has said that, uh, he said to then-president-elect Biden that, you know, authoritarian regimes would prevail because democracies were too messy and they took too long to make decisions. But the reality is they have a vibrancy which totalitarian regimes don't have and we should not be uh, in any way uh, concerned by, you know, this assertion that somehow the totalitarian regimes will prevail. Uh, totalitarian regimes have been powerful in the past and they've come down. Uh, that's because people in those regimes want the same sorts of things that we do in, in the West. Uh, they want freedom. They want, um, you know, some degree of prosperity. They want all the things that other human beings want around the world. And yet that's denied them largely uh, in their own countries. So democracies of the world need to stand together to support each other uh, and to withstand uh, the pressures coming from China and from Russia uh, and other totalitarian regimes. Kevin Andrews, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Coming up, one more country switching from the U.S. dollar to the Chinese yuan when trading with Beijing. The nation is a major player in South America. What does the shift mean for the U.S.? I, I hasten to add that these are all bilateral agreements and they're all trading agreements. That is, the yuan is a long way from an international reserve currency such as the dollar is. Milton Israti, chief economist at Vested, explains after the break here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The U.S. dollar is dominant in both trade and finance around the world. But is the Chinese yuan starting to challenge it? A major country in America's backyard now shifting parts of its trade dealings to the Chinese yuan. Milton Israti, chief economist at Vested, explains what it means and more. Milton Israti, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to begin with the news of Brazil striking a deal with China to trade in the Chinese yuan. So is this a movement away from the dollar-denominated world? What's happening here? Well, China has been trying to do this for years, and they continue to do it. And they, they have, through the Belt and Road and other arrangements, they have signed bilateral agreements to trade with China in the yuan. And it is an attempt to elevate the yuan as an international currency. Uh, and it has done so to a, to a great extent. But I, I hasten to add that these are all bilateral agreements and they're all trading agreements. That is, the yuan is a long way from an international reserve currency such as the dollar is. And on that note, we do have Saudi Arabia potentially considering to join these types of trades in the U.N. So going forward, if that were to happen with all of these different bilateral relationships happening, if the U.S. were to want to sanction China in certain events, would this type of trading in the U.N. impact that? Well, it would be the United States would uh, have more difficulty as a consequence of it. But if you look at, for instance, uh, some of the some of the efforts to sanction Russia, even though most everything is done in dollars, the United States still has to lean diplomatically on each individual country to join the sanctions. So whether it's denominated in dollars or yuan or yen or rubles, uh, it would still have to have that kind of a diplomatic agreement with the country to sanction. Now, if they're dealing in yuan, they'd be uh, less inclined uh, to sanction China, but that would be a separate decision. So it sounds like even with this Brazil deal, the U.S. dollar's dominance is, for now, still pretty stable. It is. And let me add this. In order to be the world's reserve currency, to be one of the things the dollar has that the yuan hasn't come anywhere near, is that it is the basis of trade and internet and financial agreements that don't even concern Americans. Uh, if, if Britain is trading with India, it does its business in dollars. Um, and the financial arrangements are in dollars. And China, there is none of that going on with the yuan. And even if China tried to establish itself in that respect, it doesn't have the financial markets to support that kind of arrangement. If you are the world's reserve currency, uh, as the dollar is, then traders all over the globe have to hold your currency because that's the way they do their business. Um, if they hold your currency, they want a place to invest it. If you had to hold yuan, you would want to look for a place. How am I going to make money on my yuan holdings? How are they going to be secure? China controls flows of money into and out of the country. It's not very encouraging to set themselves up as a reserve currency and then say to people, you have to ask our permission to move the money. Uh, so they have to open their financial markets in order to become the reserve. And the Communist Party is not about to do that. 
Now, on the off chance that that were to happen, that the yuan does become that reserve currency, what would that mean for Americans' daily lives? How would we feel that impact? Well, right now, because the dollar is the reserve currency, um, it is valued more. As I explained, everyone who trades has to hold dollars. That increases the demand for dollars. It means the dollar is overvalued from a strictly trading point of view. If you're an American exporter, that's very irritating because it means that your prices are higher than the competitions. But if you're an American consumer um, or American importer, that's delightful because it means you're getting stuff overseas cheaper. Um, so it, if the yuan were to replace the dollar, Americans all of a sudden would have less international buying power and would feel poorer and would be poorer. But it's a long way from happening. Anton Israti, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.